Hi, welcome to week four of our series uh, of the Branch Online Sermons, Thinking About Prayer. Last week, Jacob took us through the challenge of prayer. Next week is our final week in this prayer series, and we'll be thinking about the practice of prayer. But this week, we're thinking about the promise of prayer. When you look through the Bible, there are some pretty extraordinary statements about prayer. In the passage that we're reading today, Jesus says to his disciples, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus says similar things in other places too. That sounds pretty unconditional, doesn't it? Whatever you ask for, what believe it and it's yours. But sometimes we ask and we don't seem to get it. I remember as a kid lying in my bed praying that God would give me a new bike. I told myself that I just had to believe it and that I'd get it and it would appear. But is that really what Jesus means? It's that kind of understanding that has led some people to think that the only reason God doesn't answer our prayers is because we don't have enough faith. It's also led some people to pray for some pretty extraordinary things. Uh, in December last year, Bethel Church in the US launched a campaign to pray for the resurrection of Olive, the daughter of two of their church members. The Wake Up Olive campaign encouraged people to pray for the miracle of Olive's resurrection. According to their press release, they said that they did it in accordance with the Bible, the basis for which is modelled by Jesus in the New Testament. But is that really what Jesus modelled? Can we pray for our loved ones to be resurrected? And if we believe it, will it happen? Can we pray for a bike? And what about the things that we even know God wants us to pray for? Things like holiness or victory over sin. Sometimes it seems, doesn't it, just like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. We pray for things that we're sure are God's will, things like holiness and victory over sin, but we don't seem to get them. And then there's the question of how our prayer fits with the sovereignty of God. If God already has his plan for what he wants to do, how are our prayers in any sense meaningful? Won't God just do what he wants anyway? Does prayer change God in any sense, or does prayer simply change us? Do all our prayers just finish with a sort of defeated, well, your will be done, where, we're kind of, where we kind of really suspect that God isn't going to give us what we ask for anyway? Jesus clearly wants his disciples and us to have great expectations for prayer. But what are those expectations? What is the promise of prayer? That's what today's sermon is about. We're going to be looking at lots of different parts of the Bible, but the place we'll start is in Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 25. If you haven't read that yet, let me encourage you to stop the video and to read that now. In coming to understand what Jesus is saying about prayer in that chapter, Mark 11, we first have to get to grips with how Jesus' statement about prayer fits with what happens with the fig tree and what happens in the temple. One of my lecturers when I was at Bible college used to say, Mark loves his sandwiches, which is not a statement about Mark's eating habits, but it's a statement about how Mark, the writer of this gospel, organized the material in his gospel. You'll notice that 
In this section, there are two encounters with a fig tree, one at the beginning and one at the end. And in the middle is something involving the temple. You'll also notice that in the middle and the end, Jesus makes a statement about prayer. The fig tree bits are, if you like, are the, bits of, are the bread of the sandwich, and the temple part is the meat in the middle. And the bread expands and complements uh, the meat which is in the middle. The section in the middle with Jesus in the temple is pretty clear, I think. Jesus comes into the temple. He starts driving out all the people who've turned it into a kind of first century eBay, a kind of first century marketplace. Jesus drives out the sellers and the money changers. Why does he do that? Well, he gives the reason in verse 17. He says, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In other words, the temple had been a place that God had designated as a special place of prayer. People could go there to pray uh, to God. People could, of course, pray to God at any time and in any place. But the, the temple was a, a specially designated place of prayer. It was a place set aside as a special place where people could come and pray to God and seek God. But these people that Jesus drove out had turned it into a marketplace. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 56. Their God addresses the fact that the people are utterly hypocritical. They were seeking God uh, on the one hand, but living utterly godless lives on the other hand. But God said he wouldn't put up with that. Jesus also quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, where God again condemns the people for their worthless religion. They keep saying to themselves, we've got the temple. Uh, we're all good. You know, we're, we're all right. But all the while they are oppressing the poor and the foreigners and they're following other gods. They're not living God's ways. They, they think that they can live however they want and then rock up at the temple and expect that God will hear their prayers. So that's the bit in the middle with the temple. What about the incident with the fig tree then? In the first incident, Jesus is hungry and he comes upon a fig tree that's covered in leaves but with no fruit. Even though it's too early in the season for fruit, Jesus curses the fig tree. And then when Jesus and his disciples come back a few days later, the fig tree has withered and died. The whole thing seems a bit strange, really. But it begins to make sense when you realize that what happens with the fig tree is symbolic of the situation in the temple. Like the fig tree, which is full of leaves but without fruit, so too the people of God in the temple are all show but no substance. They give the appearance of life but there's no reality. There's a temple, there's a place where they can go to connect with God, but really they're just a dead tree. It's then that we can make sense of Jesus' statement about prayer. You see, when Jesus complains that the temple is supposed to be a place of prayer, he's not complaining that no prayer was happening there. He's complaining that the prayer that was happening was all show and no substance. The, the temple had turned into a place where not only would people transact with each other, buy and sell from each other, people would go there to transact with God. You do this, God, 
and then I'll do this. I'll say more prayers, I'll bring my sacrifices, and I'll expect to get back from you what you owe me. Hence Jesus' apparently unrelated comment about forgiving others, to pray to God for forgiveness while refusing to give others, Jesus says, is a kind of empty hypocrisy that God won't answer. It's the same kind of thing. In other words, Jesus is here not talking about the power of faith, but rather the importance of genuine prayer that flows out of a genuine relationship with God. When Jesus says in verse 22, have faith in God, the primary meaning is not really, 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 really believe. Rather, the meaning is really and truly entrust yourself to God. Don't keep your life in your own hands, living your own way, and then come to God expecting that he'll do whatever you ask of him. Come with empty hands, offering yourself up to God in faith and trust. That kind of prayer, says Jesus, is powerful. But prayer that is all show, prayer that is all leaves and no fruit is dead. So it's worth asking yourself, what kind of prayer do you pray? The question is not, do you pray? There were people in the temple praying, remember? But they were praying empty prayers. The question is not, do you pray? Rather, the question is, Does your prayer flow out of a deep trust, humility, and submission to God? Does your prayer flow out of a desire to live for God and obey him? Or are you off living your own life, doing your own thing, and then rocking up to God in prayer and just expecting him to do what you ask? If your prayer is that kind of prayer, that latter kind of prayer, then you shouldn't expect anything from God. Please understand, too, that Jesus is not saying here that we need to come to God perfect. That's beyond every single one of us. But Jesus is saying that we need to come honestly. We need to come humbly. We need to come to God through Jesus. Genuine prayer comes to God and says, Lord, you know all the ways that I'm mucked up. You know all the ways that I'm sinful. Forgive me for that and hear my prayer through Jesus. Jesus says that if you come to God in faith, humbly and trusting in God, repentant and seeking his grace through Jesus, then you should have great expectations about what God will do in response to your prayer. So Jesus says that prayer, uh, prayer that trusts God is powerful prayer as opposed to hypocritical prayer, which is powerless and dead But he seems to say more than that too, doesn't he? He seems to say that whatever we ask, God will give us. Jesus says that we should have great expectations of faithful prayer. But the question is, how great should our expectations be? First of all, Jesus says here that prayer can move mountains. What does he mean by that? Moving mountains is not a literal expression but a way of saying, do the impossible. It's like when Jesus says, it uh, talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle. He's not really talking about a camel going through the eye of, the, of a needle. He's talking about what's impossible. Jesus means that prayer to God is able to bring impossible results. That's because God is the God of the impossible. God is 
all-powerful, and so he can do what to us is impossible. Second, Jesus seems to say that if we believe enough, whatever uh, we pray for, we ought to expect that God will give it to us. Is that what he's saying? Well, to answer that question, it helps to look at some of the other similar statements in the New Testament about prayer. For example, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, we're told, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the Apostle John repeats the same kind of thing that Jesus says in Mark 11, but he also clarifies that our prayer must be according to God's will. If we if we want to expect God to answer our prayer, it needs to be in accordance with his will. God isn't giving us a blank check to ask for whatever we want. Jesus himself says something similar in John's gospel. In John chapter 14, verse 13, he says, You may ask me, Jesus says, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Jesus says that anything we, can, we ask in his name, he'll do for us. But asking in Jesus' name doesn't simply mean adding at the end of our prayers, I ask it in Jesus' name, Lord, give me a bike, in Jesus' name I pray. Uh, those aren't kind of magic words like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. Asking in Jesus' means doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't just mean saying those words, but it means asking in line with who Jesus is, asking in line with the character and the will of Jesus. So take a crass example. You can't run a dodgy business and then pray that God will bless your dodgy business practices because you say at the end of your prayer, I ask it in Jesus' name. You know, please, Lord, bless my ripping off of these other people because I ask it in Jesus' name. That is not praying in line with the character and will of Jesus. That is not praying in the name of Jesus. Jesus' meaning in Mark chapter 11 is really exactly the same. If our prayer flows out of a genuine relationship of trust in God, then the prayers that, that come out of us will accord with God's will and the name of Christ. And those are the kinds of prayers that we know that God will answer. Jesus says in Mark 11, have faith in God. He doesn't say have faith in prayer. He doesn't say have faith in what you've asked for, but have faith in God. Faith is not the belief that what we ask for will inevitably happen, but faith is trusting and abiding in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. Faith involves seeking to make sure that what we pray lines up with the will of God. And faith even means recognizing that what we ask for doesn't always do that. It doesn't always line up with the will of God. But maybe the best example of what Jesus means uh, when he says, ask whatever you will uh, and it will be granted. Maybe the best example of that comes in John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus says there, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
Jesus says that, that the foundation of our prayers uh, is remaining in him and his word. The condition, if you remain in me, ask whatever you want and it will be given. And the goal of that asking, Jesus says, is bearing much fruit to the Father's glory. If our prayers flow out of remaining and abiding and dwelling and soaking in Jesus and his words, then the prayers that we pray will be prayers that line up with the character and will of Jesus and prayers which seek after the glory of the Father in us bearing much fruit. If our prayers flow out of abiding in Jesus and his word, then of course, whatever we ask in Jesus' name will be granted because it will be what accords with God's will and purpose. That might sound like it violates our identity, but it doesn't. That learning to pray according to God's will is not a violation, violation of our identity and a destruction of our personality. Rather, praying in accordance with God's, God's will is the fulfillment of who we are. Jesus himself praying according to the Father's will was not the reduction of who he was, but it was his very identity. We mistake what freedom means when we understand it to mean the ability to do whatever is possible rather than the ability to do whatever is in our heart, whatever we want to do. We are free to do what we want. The blessing of the gospel, though, is that more and more what we want becomes exactly what God wants. Just like in a good marriage, a husband and wife wanting the same thing is not the destruction of their identity, but the perfection of their oneness. And it's the same with God, except that God doesn't take on our identity. He doesn't become like us, but we become more like him. The more we abide in Jesus and his word, the more we are shaped by Jesus and his word, and the more our prayers will be answered in the ways that we expect because more of what we pray is according to God's will and purpose rather than our own will and purpose. That should motivate us to pray with great confidence and trust in God. It should also motivate us to abide more and more in Jesus and his word. If we want to learn to pray, we need to spend our time soaking in Jesus and his word. So Jesus says that prayer that trusts God is powerful prayer, uh, as opposed to hypocritical prayer, which is powerless and dead. Jesus also says that prayer that is in line with God's will and purpose is prayer that God will answer. But finally, Jesus also wants us, he says, to pray expectantly, I think. The problem, you see, with saying that God answers prayer only in accordance with his will is that it can degenerate into a kind of fatalism that kills prayer rather than energizes prayer. We can end up thinking that if God's going to do what he likes anyway, well, what's the, what's the point of me praying? For that reason, it's helpful to think a little bit about how our prayer fits with God's sovereignty, how our prayer fits with God's determination to fulfill his plan and purpose. It's important to understand that there are places in the Bible where God clearly seems to respond on the basis of prayer. Let me give a couple of examples. In Isaiah 38, for example, King 
Hezekiah is told that he's going to die, but then he cries out to God and God spares him. God, God adds 15 years to his life. Uh, in the Old Testament book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to the people of Nineveh to declare that God is going to destroy their city. But then the people turn from their sin, they cry out to God, and God spares them. Those prayers seem to do something. But then we've also seen that the Bible is very clear on the fact that God has a plan that he's working out and that prayer is only answered according to God's will. Paul says in Ephesians 1 as well that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Both things are somehow true. That is that God responds to our prayers and that God works out all things in accordance with his will. Tim Keller says in his book on prayer, the teaching of the Bible is that our prayers matter and yet God's wise plan is sovereign and infallible. We don't always know how those two things go together, but we do have to hold them together. Another Bible scholar, Don Carson, writes, we need to do our best to ensure that these complementary truths function in our lives in the same way they function in the lives of believers described in the Bible. That is, just as the Bible writers hold the two truths together, our prayers matter and God works out his purpose, just as the Bible writers hold those two truths together without flinching, so should we. As we pray, we need to remind ourselves that our prayers matter and that God is sovereign. One way that we can understand something of that is by realizing that often our prayers are part of God's own way for achieving what he's determined. In the case of Noah and the people of Nineveh, Jonah already knew that God's plan was to have mercy on the people of Nineveh. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to them. Jonah wanted them to suffer, but God wanted them to be saved. Jonah knew that if he took the threat of judgment to the people that that uh, they would repent and God would have mercy. But it took the threat of judgment for those people to repent and turn to God in, uh, and seek his mercy. In that sense, uh, their prayers did what God had always planned to do. And in the same way, our prayers are often the way that God brings about what he already intends to do. Rather than then discourage us from prayer, that should actually encourage us to pray. Our prayers do matter. Our prayers are part of the way in which God is working through us. I remember once speaking with a friend of mine who at the time wasn't a Christian. I suggested that he read the book of Ecclesiastes because I thought it might be helpful for him to understand the gospel, understand who God is. But as we talked after he'd finished reading that book, as we talked, I realized that he still didn't get it. Uh, and as we, we went our separate ways, I remember thinking that it was hopeless. <laughs> but I found myself praying. I found myself praying in some ways like I'd never prayed before. I felt compelled to pray. And yet at the same time, I wanted to pray. A few days later, he came and told me that he finally had understood what that book was about, the book of Ecclesiastes. He'd become a Christian. God had 
both put the prayer in my heart to pray, and he'd used that prayer to bring about the salvation of my friend. Our prayers matter. That doesn't mean that God always answers the prayers in the way that we expect. The other side of the coin is God's sovereignty. Our prayers matter, but God's plan is sovereign and infallible. But that's actually really good news too. Tim Keller calls that the great safety catch of prayer. Jacob in his sermon last week showed us uh, why some prayers go apparently unanswered by God. Jesus tells us that although we might ask God for things, we might, although we might ask God for bread, God won't give us a snake instead. But that doesn't mean that we always get exactly what we want or exactly what we ask for. God always knows better than us. He always knows what's best for us. Sometimes chocolate isn't good for us, but fruit is. Fruit might seem like a bit of a letdown, but it's actually really and truly better. And it's actually a great mercy for God not to give us sometimes what we ask for. But that means that we can pray with absolute confidence. Not confidence that we'll get exactly what we want, but confidence that whatever we ask for, God will always give us the best. And in the same way, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus wants us to know that as we pray, we ought to have great expectations of what God will do. We ought not to pray doubtfully. We ought not to pray doubting that God will be generous and kind. We ought to pray expectantly, expectant that our loving Father will be generous to us, his children. It's easy to read words of these, uh, like Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, and to spend all our time explaining what they're not saying and to come away with an entirely negative view of prayer. That is, we spend all our time focusing on what not to pray for. We think, well, I shouldn't pray for that uh, because it might not be God's will. But that is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that we should have great expectations and great hopes that God will will do something good, that God will always answer our prayers in line with his will, and that whenever he does that, it will always be good. God promises us that great things come through prayer, through prayer that flows out of a genuine trust in God, prayer that flows out of abiding in Jesus and his word, and prayer that is expectant of God's goodness and love. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come full of expectation, full of hope that you, our loving Father, will hear us and answer our prayers. Lord, we come uh, in humility and faith. We come to you not as perfect people, uh, but as people who know their sin who know that we don't deserve anything from you. Lord, if there's any hypocrisy in our lives, if there's anything uh, pretend, uh, if our lives are all leaves and no fruit, Lord, please forgive us for that. Please show us that. Please help us to live lives that are anchored 
in a real and a genuine faith in you. Lord, help us not to come to you uh, in hypocrisy, expecting that uh, you'll be happy with us, that you'll, that you'll hear and answer our prayers when we're living lives that completely disregard uh, who you are and, and what you said uh, in your word and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to come in all humility. And we do that now, Lord. We come in humility, asking your forgiveness, seeking your grace, and trusting that you'll hear us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come uh, seeking uh, that your will will be done uh, in our lives. Lord, we pray that, that our prayers would more and more be anchored in who you have shown us to be. Lord, help us to abide more and more in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to abide more and more in his words so that when we pray, the things that we pray for are flowing out of our hearts, but they're flowing out of our hearts deeply, deeply uh, established in the reality of who you are. Lord, we ask that our prayers would more and more reflect your good and perfect will. But Lord, we pray too that our inability to know always what your good will is would not keep us from prayer. Lord, we pray that our inability to know what your will is would, would not mean that we come to prayer doubtful or, or hopeless. But Lord, we, we pray that we would come expectantly, hopeful, hopeful and trusting that you will do good, whatever we ask. Lord, help us to always come full of confidence that we can lay our request to you and know that you will hear us and you will do us good. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust that whatever we ask in your name, you will do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.